Good morning, Grace Chapel. How is everybody? We're good? We're going to start with Isaiah chapter 46, verse 9. Listen to this. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. You believe that? Isn't that awesome? That's, a, that's an awesome way to start, isn't it? Get our heads together here. You know, it used to be that many people in America believed that there was a God. Do you remember those days? Some of you don't. You're too young. And, and, and that the Bible was the Word of God. It was just like a common knowledge, right? And whether they believed that that God or His Word, whether they believed in that God or His Word, well, that's an entirely different matter that we're not going to talk about today. But it used to be that most people in America believed that someday they would be accountable to some sort of higher being, that there's going to be a day of reckoning, and they lived their life accordingly. Um, and many even believed that there was some kind of heaven or some kind of hell. Some even believed in something called the Apostles' Creed that you may have read or something close to it, and they believed in that as the statement for what they believed in, the way they believed the world was ordered. And the hurdles that people had back in the day to sharing the gospel uh, were, were apathy, um, a lack of a personal response, uh, wrong ideas about what the gospel was and how one obtained eternal life and went to heaven. And you just got to read the laments of preachers from way back in the 1800s to realize that really not much has changed. But now most of that has changed. And not for the better. Many today don't believe in a God at all. Uh, many don't believe that the Bible is the Word of God or has much relevance to them in their lives. Now people can't agree on issues of morality. Um, they would probably not use the word sin, and they don't accept the core faiths of Christianity that we've been going over together this summer, starting at, from the beginning. Now, now if you try to present the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ to someone, you're more likely to encounter something like, well, well that's nice, but it's just your opinion. It's just your opinion. Or, well, that may be true for you, <laughs> but it's definitely not true for me. But we can still be friends. So our word for the day, we've had one each Sunday now, is worldview. And you might say, well, Pete, that's not one word. Get over it. Uh, worldview, okay? That's, that's where we're going today. You see, everyone, every religion, every secular philosophy, everyone has a worldview. You have one, and I have one. It's how you and I look at and filter what's around us. You do it, I do it, we, we do it without even thinking sometimes, and that's part of the problem <laughs> that we don't think. And as Christians, followers of Jesus Christ, we're called in this Bible to submit the entirety of our lives. I think we sang some of that today. We're called to submit the entirety of what we think to God and to His revealed Word. And I've got lots of verses to back that up if you'd like to come and get them after. And we should be using our minds, these, these, these brains that God did give us, in a very distinctively Christian way. 
Uh, aiming to think God's thoughts, to take our thoughts captive, to interpret all the experiences that you went through this last week, even today, um, all the experiences we have here in God's world to conform with God's Word. One significant way which we can fulfill this calling that God has placed on each of us is by self-consciously embracing and developing a Christian worldview. Everybody has one, and ours is supposed to be a Christian worldview, and, and applying that to every aspect of everything that goes through our life. Uh, you, you, we have been doing this here um, on Sunday mornings, well, at least with me, for 17 years, developing a Christian worldview. Uh, we, we do it in our small groups and our Bible studies that take place on Sunday and throughout the week. Uh, you do it in your personal devotions and time that you spend with God during the week in His Word. But the diversity, it's just unbelievable today, the diversity of worldviews in America and around this planet makes it even more critical for you and I as Christians to wisely understand our world, wisely so that we have something to say about Jesus Christ in this pluralistic world in which you and I live. Paul said to a young man studying and being a pastor, and he was uh, mentored by Paul, Timothy, in 2 Timothy 4, verses 3 and 4, he said, for the time is coming, Timothy, when people will not endure sound teaching, but they'll have itching ears, and they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit those passions. And they're going to turn away. Just watch, watch. They're going to turn away from listening to the truth, and they're going to wander off into myths. That's a fulfilled prophecy. We always talk about how every prophecy in God's Word has been fulfilled and will be fulfilled. How many percent? 100%. This is not happening. This has happened. <laughs> it's a done deal. So how does Christianity, what many of you in this room and myself included, how does Christianity fit into the larger context of all these worldviews that are swirling around us? How do you answer a basic question like this? Is there a God? And your one-word answer would be, Yes. Okay, good, good. How do you know? How would you answer that? What about when the follow-up question is, well then, okay, so there is a God, and this is why you tell me you think there is one. Why then is there evil and suffering in the world? How are you going to answer that? Are you going to take them to God's Word? How do you respond to all of these issues that are around us without compromising God's truth? Well, these are just some of the questions that this message is going to try to do a really brief survey on this morning. This is where we're just going to whet your, your appetite for this. But before we do, let's pray together. Let's go to this awesome God we've been talking about. Father, we, in the name of Jesus, come before you, and we, we thank you for your precious word. We thank you for the uh, filling and indwelling of your Holy Spirit. We thank you for the opportunity you afford us in this country to freely worship and to spend time looking into your word so that we can understand and communicate the gospel better to those that you're going to send us to even this afternoon. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. 
You know, as Christians, we're not called to live in Christian ghettos. People have tried that. It didn't work out real well. Christians aren't called to engage and interact with only Christians. Do we all realize this? Rather, we're called to engage with people who don't share our distinctive faith, our practices, and the, f- the fundamental commitments that you and I take for granted. Like, like you guys are here today, right? Not many in the world are here today. Well, they're not here. They're not anywhere today. It has to do with church. Most. And that's just fundamental to me. It's like, well, wh- what else would I do? I want to worship God. But if everybody, whether they're a Christian or a non-Christian, if everybody, whether they're religious or non-religious, has a worldview, okay, follow with me, and that worldview serves as the foundation um, and the framework for all of their thoughts, what they think on a daily basis about what's going on and about people and about their parents and about their kids, and then the actions that flow out of those thoughts and that is shaping their interpretation of the world and the news and all the current events that are going on, doesn't it make good sense to engage with them on that foundational level? Instead of talking way up here, let's just talk down, skip down to the foundation here, basis. Doesn't it make good sense to engage with them in terms of their underlying worldviews? What is making them think that? What is making them act that way? First one, first worldview, theism. How many of you have heard this? Theism. You think you, think you know what theism is? It's the belief that there is a personal God, all right? And this personal God is outside of time and space. As a matter of fact, he created time and space. He created the universe out of nothing. And this God is involved in events supernaturally. He's in control. And he reveals himself to you and I, mankind, through nature and through the Bible. The Old Testament and the New Testament is what, how Christians see that God. The Tanakh, the Old Testament, is how the Jewish community sees that God. The Quran is how Muslims see that God. All of them are theists. All of them are theists. As a matter of fact, over 45% of the world's population is theistic. There's a lot of people that believe that there's one God. God sets the rules for mankind. And there will be eternal consequences if you break those rules. Theism allows for for the possibility of miracles. Because God can act in this world and wants to and is. If someone denies that God created the universe or that He acts in, in human history through supernatural events, it's because they have a different worldview. They're not theists. So many of you in this room are probably Christian theists. Okay, see, are we, we got some Christian theists. Awesome. Isaiah 46, 9, what I read earlier. I am God. We believe this. I am God, and there is none, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. Christian theist. We believe this as foundational for our view of the world, and that's how we interpret things. Well, there's, a, there's another spin-off off that, and that's deism. It's very popular, and it's a form of theism that God created everything, but He's no longer involved. He's no longer involved in creation. To illustrate deism, people have come up with the idea of viewing creation, all that is around us, as a watch, okay? 
So God made the watch. Yes, he did. They believed that. He powered it up, and he started it running according to the design of the watch. But in essence, he walked away, and he left it. It just keeps ticking away the moments that make up a dull day. It's a little Pink Floyd for those of you who don't know. The third one is, I'm sorry that offended you. Tough. Good song. Third is pantheism, okay? Um, and at its core, pantheism teaches that everything is good. Do you believe that? Everything. I mean, do you look at the news at night and go, oh, man, everything's good? Um, humans, animals, and plants are God. Everything is God. The world is God. God is the world. It can get very confusing. And God is not a he. God is more of an it, a life force, an essence. The universe is one. Everything is material is an illusion. This isn't really happening right now. Some of you just woke up. Knowledge is getting in touch with this cosmic consciousness that's all around us. And one of the favorite terms you'll hear from a pantheist is the word enlightenment. History is cyclical in that mankind is reincarnated over and over and over again until we realize our own divinity. I think a snake suggested that once, something about us being gods. Pantheism is the basis for Hinduism, Buddhism, and Christian science. The fourth one is naturalism, or what we call today modernism. It's where we've been as a society for a few hundred years. And it takes the basic position that there is no God. Does anybody know if you believe there is no God, you are an atheist, yeah, atheism, or the position that God's existence or non-existence cannot be known, which is agnosticism. Yeah, those two. So there, there is no supernatural, all right? We live in a closed system in which God, if there is one, is not operating, and the world and mankind just evolved. People are the product of their environment. Morality is decided by mankind. It's decided individually by each of us, or we might vote on it, democracy. Reason and science are the basis for authority, and they are pursued for the good of mankind. I hate to say this, but National Geographic, as much as I love some of, those, some of that stuff, is a great application of this belief. There is no purpose to history. It just happens. And when you die, you cease to exist. You become plant food. The last worldview is pluralism. And we call this postmodernism because it's where we have moved into. This is where this country in particular and the country to the north and a lot of Europe has moved. They are here. Modernism is kind of passe. Here's where we're going. And it's, it's sort of a cafeteria-style worldview. How many of you like cafeterias? Come on. Cafeterias. You get to choose the food you like. You get to choose the food you want, and at that particular moment, you get to choose you have a particular craving for. People mix and match all these various worldviews together, and 
they blend in any new ideas that come along. It all, all just fits together into this mix. And whatever sounds really cool or novel at the time, yeah, let's incorporate that too. That's cool. And generally, they reject the idea of any kind of objective truth, like the Bible. Because the Bible says it's truth. But no one view can be considered right, except the one that you might happen to believe in at that time and you're thinking at that particular moment. But people are suspicious of authority. They're skeptical of authority. Boy, have we ever seen a time like that? My goodness, today. They are in search of some kind of identity. Oh my, there's a, there's a catchphrase. In search of some kind of identity. But it's not an identity based on knowledge. It comes through relationship. They're on a quest for meaningful community in church. We need to understand that this is what people are looking for. They're on a quest for meaningful community because everybody seems to let you down eventually. They seek spirituality, but not through organized religion, so we should probably be unorganized. I'm just kidding. If you're with me, you're going to laugh. Okay. Some of you. Okay. Just laugh and make me feel like, yeah, you get good. They might even express that knowing smirk, you know, yeah, right, at anybody who says they know or possess the truth, and especially if they point to the Bible. There are many ways to God. There is no one truth, or even the reality of an absolute truth itself does not exist. To this, Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one comes to the Father. And increasingly, you and I as Christians find ourselves in this melting pot of various worldviews. And someone has illustrated our dilemma as followers of Jesus Christ by saying, to nail down what someone actually believes and what they're actually trying to say is like trying to nail jello to the wall. Now, some of you may be, you know, a really, really clever. Well, Pete, if you froze that jello, you could nail it to the wall. Yeah, but what's going to happen? It's going to warm up and it's going to melt and it's going to fall off. It doesn't last very long, which is pretty applicable. So, what I want to do this morning, in the time we have left, that's what preachers always say when they're just starting. Just <laughs> I want to ask the basic starting question. It's, it's going to be kind of a mini review of core belief, core faith number one that we started the summer with in exercise number one. Is there a God? And if there is a God, how might we know? An outspoken atheist, Christopher Hitchens, he's the author of a not-so-great book called God is Not Great, he stated this, that which can be asserted without evidence can be dismissed without evidence. But, but really, is there no evidence for God? The Bible, which Wade Keenest presented to us in core faith exercise number six, proved to be a secure and sure foundation. It's the place we go to discover God's truth. And the Word of God itself declares the evidence is all around us. 
Just open up your eyes and see. An outspoken Christian, the Apostle Paul, author of a great letter called Romans, stated in Romans 1, 18 to 22, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. These scripture verses say that God is known by all of mankind, or at least certain aspects about God are known based on the evidence of the created universe, specifically His eternal power and His divine nature are known. How powerful must a being be to be able to create something as large and magnificent as this universe? Think about it. The revelation of God, the revelation that God has given to you and I in creation makes you and I as humans responsible to God, responsible to Him in honoring Him as God and giving thanks to Him for everything, everything. The story is told of the Emperor Napoleon who was, while he was on one of his ships at night, he heard some of the sailors mocking the idea of God's existence. And as he pointed to the stars, he said, gentlemen, you must get rid of those first. Very perceptive. So, so why do people reject the existence of God? Why? Why does mankind, as Paul puts it, suppress the truth by their unrighteousness? Especially, as Paul says, if it's right in plain sight, why do people say there is no God? Well, Paul answers that a little later in this wonderful book called Romans in chapter 3, verse 10. He says, well, here's the problem. <laughs> None is righteous, no, not one. Yeah, but I got this friend. No, nobody. No one understands. Well, I got people who are pretty smart. No one understands. No one seeks for God, but I thought I, thought, I thought I sought out God. No, you didn't. You were called by God. No one seeks for God. Rejection of God is primarily a moral problem. It's a sin problem. Before Jesus saved me, Peter Mannering, I was unrighteous. I, I, was unri I know this is a shock for most of you. But before Jesus saved me, okay, there was, a, there was a time that none of you know about where I was unrighteous. Can you imagine that? No, thank you. Yeah, no, we can't, yeah. I avoided, I put down, I dismissed anything righteous. Anything especially that might expose my unrighteousness. We're like bugs under rocks. We really are as human beings. We're like bugs under rocks. We scurry and we hide when light shines on our darkness. Intellectual arguments 
will not solve our problem. You ever tried to argue someone to church? How'd that work out? You ever tried to argue someone into salvation? If someone does not want to be morally accountable to God, they will not accept the best argument in the world. The Bible presupposes a belief in God, and much of the Bible is then about defining who God really is. The very first sentence of the Bible assumes God. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created. I accept the existence of God based on faith alone. Do you? Now, is there evidence that God provides over the course of my walking with Him and your walking with Him to, to strengthen my faith? Absolutely. You, you can look at how um, God gave Moses fantastic supernatural signs, some of the biggest in the Bible. Why? To prove to Israel that God had sent Moses and to prove to Pharaoh that the God of Israel was the one true God. You can check it out in Exodus chapter 4. You can look at how Thomas, one of Jesus' chosen 12 disciples, needed evidence for Jesus' resurrection from the dead when he asked to see the nail prints in Jesus' hands and the spear pierced side of the Savior. It's in John chapter 20, verse 25. Well, Israel and Thomas both believed. Pharaoh bowed his knee, albeit just for a moment, but he did bow his knee. So proofs about God do play a role in revealing the truth about God to, to you and I humans. So one way to address this issue of God's existence is to consider some of the basic traditional evidences for God, and they're called apologetic arguments. Have you heard these? Apologetic arguments. But these arguments should never be considered absolute proof for God, and they definitely have counter-arguments that society has, and philosophy and non-religious people have come up with to counter these arguments. But these evidences, especially when taken together, can lead someone to believe that the existence of God is more reasonable than the belief that God does not exist. And there's a handout on the back table to introduce you to some of those arguments so that you can understand them a little bit a little bit better. But let's get back to what the Bible has to say to you and to me as a, as a Christian theist. How do you answer, why is there evil in suffering? How do you answer that? In Jesus' day, evil and suffering were explained by how much of a sinner you were, right? You understand that? So you received the amount of evil and suffering accordingly. So if you're a bad sinner, we're going to see you suffer in this life. If you're a righteous person, we've already read that there aren't any, but if you're a righteous person, you should get little suffering. Right. It's almost kind of like a karma thing, isn't it? It is. So the disciples wanted to know, for instance, why this man they saw who everybody knew was blind from birth, why did that happen? Why is this man going through his whole life blind? Was it him? Did he do something horrible while he was in his mother's womb? Uh, was it his parents that did it before he was born? 
And there's still some of that tendency that you and I have today, isn't there? Come on, be honest. Why is that person not doing well? Why am I doing well? Well, it's obvious that they're getting punishment for choices they've made in their life, and then there's me. (laughs) But what we typically encounter in our world today in this crazy postmodern worldview is that this question of suffering really isn't being asked as a question. It's being delivered as an accusation. If your God is so good, and if your God is so all-powerful, then how can there be evil in the world? Some have even claimed that since evil is very observable, there must not be a God. Or if there is a God, He's not that good, or number two, He's not all that powerful, or number three, He just doesn't care. There's a story of some Jewish rabbis who were still alive in the Jewish extermination camp of Auschwitz in World War II, one of the worst ones, who once decided because of all the horrors they were personally going through as God's chosen people, they put God on trial one night, and they found Him guilty. Nobel laureate Eli Wiesel stated, I was there. It happened at night. There were just three people. And at the end of the trial, they used the Hebrew word shayav rather than the word guilty. Shayav means he owes us something. And then we went to pray. You see, this problem of horrific evil in our world is one of the major objections to God's existence. But consider this. There is no logical fallacy in making a statement about the problem of evil alongside the existence of a good God. All of the following can be true, can't they? God is good. God is all-powerful. God created the world good. The good world became evil. Where's the contradiction? I think what people really mean is this. God is good. God is all-powerful. God created the world good. Therefore, the good world should not contain evil. But that idea from you and I, that the world should not contain evil if there is a God and He is good, isn't that really just an assumption? an assumption made with our limited, fallible human minds? Couldn't you respond by saying, doesn't evil presuppose good? For instance, shadows prove the existence of sunshine. God's goodness to you and I is in spite of our rebellion to His goodness. It's another way to flip that around. C.S. Lewis once described pain and suffering in our lives as God's megaphone that rouses the ear of a deaf world. When are the times that people have grown closest to God? Is it through the good times or is it through the 
bad times? Is it through times of feasting or is it through times of famine? James 1, 2-4, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know, you know this, don't you, that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect. This is where God's heading you, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The Bible declares over and over and over again that the chief purpose of life is to glorify and know God, right? Paul expressed this in Philippians 3, 9 through 11. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own <clears throat> that comes from obeying the law, but that which comes through faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The chief purpose of life is not human happiness. Well, isn't that kind of an American thing? Well, in fact, it's we humans who rebelled into slavery to sin, we did that. God's role is not to make that fallen human life the life you and I chose all the more comfortable for us. See how dumb that looks? Oh, oh, God says, look what you've gone and done. Let me make you more comfortable in your sin. I don't think so. No, it's God saying, let me get you out of that sin, that place you've put yourself. In John's gospel, Lazarus, who's one of Jesus' close friends, he gets sick and he dies. And in John 11:4, we read, but when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. And you, most of you know the rest of this story. You can read it in John 11. <clears throat> it is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. In spite of the penalty of death that everyone deserves we see God's mercy and God's glory shining through, even in this story. In 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18, Paul goes on to compare the sufferings of this life. And boy, if you read his life story, didn't he suffer physically? It was unbelievable. And he compared the sufferings that he had gone through in this life with the eternal weight of glory. <laughs> Compared to eternity with God, Paul considers the sufferings of this world, he says, to be slight momentary affliction. Pfft. Do you ever look at your issues in life as slight momentary affliction? <laughs> well, that kind of perspective is critical for Christians who are undergoing and going through suffering. This kind of foundation, this kind of a core belief will come across weird to those who don't know God through Jesus Christ. It will. There's no way around that. But even if we can see some possible purpose in some evil or terrible suffering, there are always going to be events, and I usually find lots of them, where we just don't understand. But Pete, you're a pastor. You're supposed to have the answer. I don't. I got nothing as far as why. 
especially when they happen to us. It's easy to look at other people's suffering and go and say, there's got to be some purpose in that. But when you're going through it, it takes on a whole new way. We just have to recognize that we're finite creatures who can't know God's purpose in allowing all things to happen. Jesus summarized this for us, I think, the best, because He is the best at summarizing life. This is, this is the key for today. Jesus summarizes it um, when, when, when considering the issue of, of uh, evil and suffering in the world. It's in Luke chapter 13. Luke records it. In, it's in five verses of, first five verses of Luke 13, and it reads, There were some present at that very time who told him, that's Jesus, about the Galileans, so this group of Galileans, whose blood, so they were killed by Pilate, he had their blood mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Because he knew how they thought, he knows how we think. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or, or, or Jesus goes on, or, or what about those 18 on whom a tower in Salome fell and killed them all? Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Did you notice the two different types of evil and suffering that are presented in this, in this story? The first one is the example given by the people who have a particular backdrop to why people suffer, and it's, it's a moral evil. Um, Pilate, the governor of Judah, has killed some Galileans. Why they're killed, we're, we're not told, it's not known. And in the second case, the counterexample given by Jesus Christ himself, a tower fell apparently accidentally and killed 18 people. You might call this a, a natural evil or a natural disaster. How do they, how do they describe that on my insurance policy? Uh, an act of God. Isn't that interesting? There is a God, at least on my insurance policy. The Jewish people are coming to Jesus asking, why did this moral, morally wrong evil happen? Because they had come to the conclusion, which Jesus already knew, that it happened because these people who died had to be really bad sinners. I mean, they had to totally deserve it. This was their punishment for life. What else could it possibly be? It has to be this, right, Jesus? Now, consider Jesus' counterpoint using natural evil. He basically says, well, actually, truth be told, you're all sinners, and unless you repent, you will all perish in eternity, a place where everyone is eventually heading. In other words, don't focus so much on why these evil events occur, but focus on your own relationship with God. That's what's important. Get off that other kick. Make sure you are right before God so that when you die, for we will all die, whether accidentally or through some evil or just old age, so that when you die, you don't eternally perish. And now we've come full circle. I don't know if you've noticed. Right back to the answer to the sin problem. 
the sin issue, which many avoid, which many marginalize or reject or especially discount its eternal death consequence, the sin issue, the reason why there are so many worldviews, worldviews that are opposed to God's truth about Himself and especially God's truth about you and I, who we are before God. Sin and evil things are not created by God. They are an impoverishment of the things created by God. Just like darkness is the absence of light, cold is the absence of heat, evil is the absence of good. The Bible says that God created the world and it was good. The Bible says, however, man sinned and brought sin and suffering into God's good world. So God has been in the process of eradicating sin, ending all suffering, and condemning Satan. And all of this will happen in God's perfect timing. The Apostle John writes in Revelation 21, verse 1 and verse 4, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The world views, all of them will pass away. Only God's truth will remain in the end. And His truth is so good, so available to everyone who will call upon the name of the Lord. So what can you and I do? Galatians 5, 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also behave in accordance with the Spirit. You see, if the Holy Spirit is real, and we saw that in one of our core faith, right? Holy Spirit real? Yep, third person of the triune God. If the Holy Spirit grants us, according to Paul, a new worldview, God's perspective on life that comes from God's Word, then we behave accordingly. And one of those behaviors is worship. Would you rise with me? Heavenly Father, we lift our voices that come from hearts that have been penetrated by Your truth. And God, our only response is to honor You, to worship You, and then by your power and through your strength and through the words you will grant us when we walk out these doors, share that good truth with those who desperately need to hear it. Give us that kind of resolve, that kind of love, that kind of burden for this lost world. And we pray it in Jesus' most precious name. Amen.